If you would open your Bibles to Acts uh, chapter 21, uh, we're continuing in our series, The Rise of the Christian Church. The Rise of the Christian Church. One of the things uh, that I notice as I get uh, older, and I'm not claiming the title old, okay, but I've also noticed that nobody's calling me young anymore. And there are occasions where I look around and I realize I'm the oldest person in the room. And I don't know when that started happening, but I see it every now and then. But one of the things that I notice in myself as I get older is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness and a difficulty focusing. And when I said that first service, I'm surprised my family didn't shout out, Amen! Because they have witnessed it firsthand. Sometimes I can't remember if the conversation that I'm thinking about is one that's just in my head or if I've already had it out loud with someone. So I'll come to Amy and say something like, hey, I found that book that I was looking for. And she'll say, I know, you told me yesterday and read me an excerpt. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't remember. Or sometimes we reach a decision about like family logistics, you know, who's, you know, school pickup or who's cooking dinner tonight or whatever. And because there were several tentative other plans, I often can't remember the one that we, you know, finished off on, the last plan, the one that we're supposed to do. So to that I say, thank God for group text because I can ask the family, you know, who's picking up Gus today? You are. Okay, okay, I'll do it. And then there's the classic, I know I'm not alone in this. You walk into a room and you stand there for a moment and you go, why did I come in here? What was it I was to do? Oh yeah, preach a message, right? I'm supposed to preach. Got it. Another thing I've noticed in my own mind in recent years is just the level of distraction that I have, just the difficulty of, of focusing for a long train of thought, whether it's reading or writing or, or whatever. I just, I just feel distracted by all sorts of things. And I definitely think that's sort of social media and devices and all the rest. And I'm not a Luddite. I'm just saying I think that's one of the impacts they have upon us. But all that to say, it's hard to stay on task it's hard to stay focused on the mission at hand. And these past few weeks, we've been tracking the Apostle Paul's journey toward Jerusalem. And he has this kind of laser focus. His face is set on Jerusalem. And he will not be deterred. And Paul goes to Jerusalem with full knowledge that he's going to suffer there. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to him generally in Acts chapter 9, even right at his conversion when Ananias came down. Remember, the word was, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to him regularly uh, by Paul's own testimony in Acts 20 verse 23. He says that in every town, the Holy Spirit prepares him for suffering and for incarceration that's coming. Then we saw even last week that this was revealed to him specifically uh, through the disciples inside. That in the Spirit, they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And last week, I tried to kind of show that nuanced position there of, I think they heard the right word, that suffering was coming, but probably gave the wrong application, therefore don't go. And then we saw the prophecy from this fellow Agabus, who dramatically... And literally, dramatically, he dramatized sort of what was to happen to Paul when he got to Jerusalem by taking his belt 
and binding himself and saying, and this is what's going to happen to you. But Paul, in spite of all of this, in a way that seems to sort of echo Jesus, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. In spite of the challenges of head. And, and then even the phrases spoken by the disciples in Tyre when they couldn't convince him not to go and they said, thy will be done. All of these things seem to be sort of as he prayed, thy will be done. And he went willingly to his death knowing what was coming. And so I think the thoughtful reader, the reader that's sort of paying attention to these things will notice that Dr. Luke, our author, and a companion, a missionary companion with Paul, seems to be planting these similar echoes here. The reader is prepared. Paul's going to be a martyr in Jerusalem, apparently. That's kind of what we feel set up for. And then something unexpected happens. Paul actually defends himself. And this sort of becomes a contrary echo, if you will. If you think about uh, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, as he describes the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah to come, he says, he was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. But Paul opens his mouth, right? And this is uh, what we would find to be the first of what would become five trials here, and Paul will defend himself sort of with three different tactics. The first is by clarifying his identity, and then secondly, by clarifying his ministry. Thirdly, he will claim the rights of a Roman citizen. And to be honest, it seems a little bit, it seems odd, because it seems like a diversion from the trajectory of the narrative, or from the reader's expectation, or at least from this reader's expectation, right? We've been prepared for what looks like Paul's impending death as a martyr. So why does he do this? Why then does he mount this defense? And what significance might it have for us? These are the questions we're taking to our text. So chapter 22, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So our first point this morning is that Paul defends himself by clarifying his identity. Obviously here at the outset, there's just this case of mistaken identity, at least by the arresting officers. They're assuming that he's the leader of a terrorist group out of Egypt, so while Paul is absolutely ready to die for Christ and to die for the gospel of grace, he's not going to die for a case of mistaken identity, right? And so he rightly clarifies who he really is. And while it may not be sort of immediately obvious to us, 
uh, in this interchange about spoken languages, the languages and that, that dialogue kind of helps clarify or confirm Paul's claim about who he is. First of all, he's Jewish, but he speaks Greek. He's educated. He speaks the sort of international language of the day. Uh, he's also a local boy, which is confirmed by his ability to speak Aramaic, which is kind of the marketplace language of the region. In other words, Paul is not the head of an Egyptian-based terrorist organization as the officers, the arresting officers, had assumed. And there's this other note of interest here. Maybe it's not interesting to you, but it's terribly interesting to me, and you got to dance with Ubrungya, so here we go. <laughs> it's this, this phrase that the Apostle Paul begins his defense to the crowd with. He says, Brothers and fathers... Listen now to my defense. And you might say, Eric, what's so interesting about that? I'm glad you asked. What's interesting is this. It's the exact phrase that Stephen began his defense with back in chapter 7 when an angry mob surrounded him and prepared to stone him to death and the Apostle Paul is there giving his approval. And it makes me think and wonder how often Paul circles back to that event and others like it. What's in his memory of his past? What does the evil one visit against him? How does he deal with guilt and shame? He was one there giving his approval. It's not hard to imagine that sort of these words of Stephen's godly speech right before his death that Paul approved of are haunting words for Paul. And it seems to me that this was something he lived with and dealt with and carried with him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says this, For I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So it's interesting to me that Paul starts out in Jerusalem persecuting Christians, but now Paul returns to Jerusalem in ironic fashion, being persecuted as a Christian. And poetically, he employs the words of Stephen to the opening of his own defense. Brothers, fathers, listen to me. So as we'll see here, Paul is able to initially kind of get this, state, this case of mistaken identity, gets that off of him. He kind of gets that dismissed, so to speak. But unfortunately, it's just an instance of out of the frying pan into the fire here. Our second point. Paul defends himself by clarifying his ministry. Verse 3. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priests and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished." About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. 
My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, those people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and to beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, here we get this really interesting sort of autobiographical account of Paul's background and his training. He's Jewish by heritage. That's his pedigree. He has local roots. He grew up right here in town in Jerusalem. He has religious zeal. Uh, He was one who even was stamping out Christianity, believing it to be a heretical movement. He has excellent training. He studied under Gamaliel, who is sort of the uh, most popular uh, seminary professor of the day, if you will. He's had an encounter with the risen Lord, leading to his conversion. And he even has the witness of Ananias, one who is a respected, devoted observer of the law, to corroborate that. So if you're in the court of law and this testimony is what is laid out and these evidences are produced, you go, pretty solid here. And in fact, it seems like all ears are listening to this impressive list, sort of contradicting their false assumptions and whatever else. He seems to be winning over the crowd until he crosses a line. In verse 22, it says, The crowd listened to Paul, Until he said this, then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not even fit to live. So what is the tipping point here? What is the line that has been crossed that created such antagonism? And amazingly, it's not his persecution of Christians. It's not the fact that he arrested men and women. It's not that he stood there giving approval even of Stephen's death, it's not even his claim to have seen the resurrected Lord. Amazingly, the thing that gets everyone riled up is this, his claim that God has commissioned him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In first century Judaism, they could not accept that God's salvation was equally offered to Gentiles outside of the requirement for law observance. And for that statement, 
for that scandal, they say, rid the earth of him. We can tolerate persecution, visions, all these other things, but that Gentiles could be saved outside of the law, kill them. Friends, I would say that the most scandalous feature of the Christian gospel has always been that it is a gospel of grace. That a holy God loves sinners. Even in the midst of their sin and their rebellion, his love is undeterred. That his heart's desire is to forgive sinners. And that he redeems sinners at his own cost and his own initiative. It is God who sends his son to be the atoning sacrifice for the sinners of the world. And that mankind can do nothing to earn or merit or deserve this salvation. And that is a scandal to legalists everywhere. John Stott has said it this way. The gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. The symbol of Christianity is the cross and not the scales. So Paul's claim here to have been sent by God to preach the gospel of grace to Gentiles This hits squarely on the issue for these law-abiding Jews. For them, that's a bridge too far. And how do they react? Verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. (laughs) That's a funny scene. That's the thing that kids do at recess. That's what your kid does in a full-blown tantrum and meltdown. And they're having a tantrum in a full-blown meltdown here. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. Now, I want to just take a moment here to highlight all of the confusion, because there's several layers of confusion going on here, even more than just our passages showing. First of all, the reason the Jews got angry with Paul in the first place was because they misunderstood his teaching. They were under the impression that he was going around telling Jews not to participate in the legal practices and customs, which is not what he was doing. They also assumed that he had brought a Gentile into the court, beyond the court of Gentiles in the temple, and therefore defiled the temple. That was just a false assumption that they had come to as well. And not even the PR program that Pastor James puts forward for him where he sort of participates in this Nazarite vow and even vouches or, or sort of under uh, pays for the, a couple of other guys to do the same thing. Not even that changes their opinion. So that's one layer of confusion going on just with the Jewish crowd. Then you have the Roman guard seeing sort of the kerfuffle here, if I can use that word. And they go, well, we got to arrest him because he must be uh, an Egyptian terrorist leader. So we've got a whole second layer of confusion going. Then as he's able to deal with some of this, the Jews get riled up again about this whole other issue of teaching that Gentiles can be saved without keeping to the Mosaic law. And I just want to go, this poor guy, he can't win for losing, right? I'll suffer for the truth, fine, but I'm not going down for these lies and these perceptions. Then finally, we have the Romans who basically, okay, well, let's flog him. An ancient way of sort of practicing a truth serum. We'll just beat the truth out of him. And then Paul plays the trump card, Roman citizen. That leads us to our third point. 
Paul defends himself by claiming his civil rights. Verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, "Uh, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man's a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So let me just talk briefly about Roman citizenship to make sure that we understand that. Roman citizens were highly regarded and highly protected in the ancient world. Uh, A Roman citizen could not be subjected to this kind of interrogation. They had to stand trial first. Uh, You might even uh, remember hearing over the years, especially Easter sermons, that a Roman citizen couldn't even be uh, killed or executed by crucifixion because that was a means of death that was sort of too grotesque and too inhumane. So you can kind of see the elevated status and rights and privileges that Roman citizens enjoyed. Uh, maybe, maybe similar to American citizens in the modern world, as Rome was the superpower of the day, and so they similarly walked around with confidence in an array of legal rights and due process. And the interchange is interesting here too. Paul says, "I'm a Roman citizen," but how do we know? What he, he's not asked to produce any proof, right? It's not like he's like, "Here's my passport. These are my papers." got this Pax Romana tattoo on my shoulder. Like, we don't, we don't have anything. And sort of the commanding officer overseeing affairs, he tests this a little bit because apparently there's a way by which you could purchase a Roman citizenship and it seemed to be quite expensive. But then Paul basically delivers the mic drop, right? Natural born citizen. His citizenship even trumps the commanding officers. His citizenship is unimpeachable. And while he doesn't produce any proof, we can see that even an investigation into the claim would reveal the unlawful process and leave everybody in jeopardy. So I'm going to start bringing this to a close here. Up to this point, Paul's journey to Jerusalem is one anticipating suffering, anticipating incarceration and bondage and death. And Paul's willing to do it. He's willing to do it. By comparison, Jesus did not claim his rights. He did not practice the same kind of brinksmanship that Paul did to escape death. For all of the strength and all of the power and all of the rights that the Lord Jesus Christ could have claimed to escape his own death, he did not. Paul, however, willing to die for the name of Christ deftly used an assortment of his rights and tactics in his own defense, which brings us to the question of the morning, and it's this. Which one are we to do, and how do we know? And I would say this. The reason that Paul evades prosecution and employs and makes use of his rights, that's our fourth point, is so that Paul can stay on mission and take the gospel to the Gentiles, even to the far reaches of Rome. And friends, I think this becomes the rubric of our own decision-making 
as we face these things. So Paul's defense is not one of just mere self-preservation, right? Rather, he is preserving the right and the opportunity to stay on mission and to proclaim the gospel of grace to the ends of the earth. Willing to die for the mission, but not going to die for a case of mistaken identity, false accusation, or premature death, right? Because the mission of God is too important to pack it in easily. Therefore, in this instance, he claims his rights. Christ's mission was to die. Our mission is to proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. So I think it breaks down like this. Be willing to suffer for the gospel. And Christian, you don't have to go looking for it. It'll find you, okay? Be willing to suffer for the gospel. But be also willing, to, uh, in some settings, to claim your rights for the gospel. Let gospel promotion be your guide, your rubric. Ask yourself the question, what will be the most beneficial to gospel witness as I choose to take my rights or to not take my rights? I think that becomes a rubric. So let me just rummage around in your life a little bit, maybe show you what this could look like in your situation. Uh, First of all, I would say this. We have some incredible rights and privileges in this country. The ability to vote, to elect our leaders, the ability to consider issues, and to say what we want to say about them, and the command to pray for our leaders. And as Christians, we need to take that very seriously. And I, I want to give a little caveat here. That's not our hope. We don't hope in the government. We hope in the gospel and the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. But we have these rights, and we ought to utilize them. Secondly, I would say, know your rights as an employee. Whether you work for the government or the school district or DOT or Fort Knox, private sector for a union, know your rights. And there may be times where you utilize them and there may be times that you don't. But the rubric for what you do there should be what will be best for the sake of the gospel. So let's say you work for a union and they decide we're going on strike. And you have to ask yourself the question, can I in good conscience before the Lord Participate in this strike, or do I need to go to work? What do I do? Ask yourself the question, what will be most beneficial for gospel witness? And therein, I think, is your answer. And finally, we'll just say this. When we don't exercise our rights, they get lost. They get forfeited. We tend to keep the rights that we practice. So let the exercise of your rights not be merely for personal gain, but ultimately for the witness of the gospel and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the two examples that we have in Christ, whose heart for the unredeemed was so strong that he set aside his rights, willing to be made a sacrifice of atonement for sin. We thank you also for the example of the Apostle Paul, whose burden that the gospel would go forward was so strong that he was willing to claim all of his rights, that he may not be killed prematurely. Lord, in these two examples, and this rubric in the middle, may we learn how to follow you well in this world, to use wisdom and discernment, to listen to your spirit. May we be your faithful witnesses. 
We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen.